0: Welcome to episode 61 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crivat, and each week, leveraging Zoom for now, I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crivatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Terry Oliver, the first Chief Technology Innovation Officer at BPA, the Bonneville Power Administration, After a fantastic adventure of a career, Terry is now retired, but not tired. The Bonneville Power Administration is a self funding part of the U.S. Department of Energy, a federal nonprofit wholesale power marketer that sells carbon free electricity from 31 federal dams and one nuclear power plant to millions of consumers and businesses in eight states while operating three-quarters of the region's high-voltage transmission grid. BPA also funds one of the largest fish and wildlife programs in the world and, with its partners, pursues cost-effective energy savings and operational solutions that help maintain affordable, reliable, and clean energy for the Northwest United States. As CTIO, Terry created and managed BPA's research and development portfolio. I'd like to thank the people at the BPA and the other energy organizations for keeping the lights on and the internet up during this time of uncertainty. We're all in this together. While being careful and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Terry has worked globally to advance sustainable energy and re-engaged the electric utility industry in critically important research and development. He led the world's largest residential conservation program and groundbreaking research in community-based conservation. He designed the first demand-side management programs ever undertaken by a developing country and created linkages between sustainable energy, jobs, and the local and global environment with non-government organizations throughout Asia, South Africa, and the Middle East. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Terry Oliver, Chief Technology Officer at BPA, Bonneville Power Administration. He's retired, but not tired. Welcome to the Climate Champions. Thanks. Before we even start, I wanted to tell you, I'm excited to talk to you. You were very early involved in climate change activities from a utility perspective.
1: And even earlier, from a non-utility perspective.
0: (laughs) Okay, I can't wait to get into that. And I think we'll get at that now. If you can talk about the motivating moment for you when you felt like you had to engage in climate change mitigation activities.
1: That was actually probably when I moved to Bangkok and began working for the International Institute for Energy Conservation. The United Nations had just had a big conference about climate change, and IIEC's role was to promote energy efficiency, energy conservation. And it quickly turned out that one of the key motivations was not just to save money and avoid building big power plants, but also to help save the planet.
0: And what year was that?
1: Uh, I went there in 91.
0: That's a long time, the almost 20 years that you've been engaged. Yeah. So what did you do early on?
1: The first thing we did was a big project with the World Bank that was to design a demand-side management program for the Electricity Generating Authority of Thailand. Big project. <laughs> Sounds
0: very exciting. And why is climate change mitigation important to you?
1: You know, it really comes down to saving the planet and saving my kids and saving my grandkids. Climate change is going to be even more disruptive than the pandemic and going to cause more people to move around on the planet. It's generally going to be pretty bad news. And it's not hard, actually, to begin to solve it. Back in the bad old days of the 1990s, the Natural Resource Defense Council basically pitched, look, it's an insurance policy. We should be doing energy efficiency. (laughs) And truly, that's a no-brainer. You don't have to get to carbon sequestration and extracting CO2 from coal plants if you at least begin the work to get to energy efficiency.
0: I think in the 90s that might have been the case, but now it seems like we're very far down the road where climate change is already occurring. We already have a tremendous amount of carbon in the atmosphere and greenhouse gases. It seems like now it's more than just an insurance policy.
1: Yes, it is. And along the way, we've stumbled across very interesting things like packetized energy and transactive energy and having variable loads to offset variable renewables. So there's a lot of advances that make this not as difficult as people seem to think.
0: You mentioned the pandemic and climate change being worse. Can you talk about how the pandemic has changed your thinking with regards to climate change?
1: I'm not quite sure I understand that completely yet. The one thing I have noticed is uh, people are saying, well, look, we have a pandemic and now we have clear skies.
0: Yeah, problem solved.
1: That's not exactly an association that I think helps climate change solutions.
0: Yeah, I think it's important that people realize that the fact that there are clear skies doesn't mean that there's no greenhouse gases still in the atmosphere, just like there used to be. Right. When you meet people that don't understand why climate change is important or don't understand the data that supports it, how do you explain it to them so they understand it?
1: Well, I've been watching a guy try to do that. I think it's pretty easy to explain. And we have a former vice president who did a pretty good job of explaining what's going on in the atmosphere and why it's important. But I've been watching a geologist from Central Washington University do nightly lectures from home. And he's not really ever had to deal with climate change. He's a geologist. And yet people are pitching him questions about, well, didn't volcanoes do this? Isn't this all about the sun? <laughs> and he's actually having to sort of back up and say, you know, I'm a geologist. I'm an amateur at this. But even as a geologist, I know that there is a particular science-based sequence of events that aren't explained by humans and dinosaurs being around the planet together. And so he's struggling with how to get his own expertise in geology available to explain what the sequence of things that are science-based and in the rocks that sort of obviate some of the less credible explanations for why the planet is warming.
0: So you said that you could explain it pretty easily. Do you want to take a shot at it, a simple explanation?
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and it's growing every day. And carbon dioxide is a warming gas, and it's actually not as bad as the other big, more immediate one, methane, natural gas. We have a natural gas transmission system that leaks. So you have a couple of really important global warming gases being put into the atmosphere. And those both need to be tamped down, if not completely eliminated, in order to keep the Earth warming from literally spinning out of control.
0: It seems pretty simple, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, to us pointy heads, probably
0: is. Yeah, yeah, to us pointy heads. Can you talk about what you're doing with regards to climate change mitigation, both now and what you did when you were the chief technology officer at Bonneville?
1: Well, and even before that, one of the big projects I did relatively early in my career at BPA was the Hood River Conservation Project. We insulated the Bee Jesus out of a town in north central Oregon and demonstrated how much energy and peak load you could save by insulating houses to extraordinary levels. That whole process of saving energy is a key component of saving the planet. You know, even earlier, before I was at BPA, I was a part of an organization called Citizens for Solar Washington. And this was pretty much before (laughs) there were very many advances in uh, solar energy, and so you could, you could pretty easily see a trickle of renewable energy coming into the system and really not offsetting very much energy use at all. And we pretty quickly realized that we weren't going to be successful at getting to a solar Washington if we didn't do energy efficiency, if we didn't do energy conservation. It's like, well, if you've got a bucket with holes in it, you can pour a lot of water into that bucket and never fill it up. And here you are, a house with a lot of holes in it, and you can put a lot of electricity in it and never offset the loss of energy, either in cooling or in heating. So we said, well, geez, the first thing we have to do is plug up the holes in the bucket. That enables a better match between the renewable energy resources and energy use in society. And that's been applied to automobiles. It's been applied to homes. It's been applied to businesses. And then the innovation at BPA late in my career was stumbling across transactive energy, that you could actually systematically wiggle loads in order to fit a supply curve coming from renewable energy. That's a big deal. Now, of course, we thought that it would take about five years to convince people. (laughs) We're still working on it, but it still has legs and The latest thing that I've been working on is what's the utility business model and regulatory model that it takes in order to make those kinds of things actually possible. As long as the utility is rewarded for big capital investments, it's a problem to get get them rewarded for micro load changes that fit the new generation. A lot of utilities are beginning to move that direction. You see Southern California Edison moving that way. Portland General Electric has three pilot projects taking a look at how smart grid fits renewable energy supply. There's a lot of experimentation, more experimentation than ever before around what those solutions are, but it also needs to leak into the regulatory sphere and the legislative sphere to make that possible.
0: I've spent some time thinking about transactive energy. I even went on a rate that San Diego Gas and Electric offered, which there were some times when it was under a dime per kilowatt hour. And when the grid was in need, I believe it was over a dollar forty, maybe a dollar fifty a kilowatt hour. But those were the hottest days when we had already been trying to conserve. It was incredibly difficult living in the house with that kind of heat and trying not to use the air conditioner because I didn't want to spend a dollar fifty per kilowatt hour. So it was just very difficult. Right. I think it's going to take a lot to figure out how to make a system like that actually work in the real world.
1: Yes, I don't disagree with that. Here's the thing that we stumbled across. So we were doing the first experiment with transactive energy up on the Olympic Peninsula over a winter. What we found was that if you gave not just a time of use price signal, but a forward-looking price signal, that the smarts around this transactive energy system would say, I should be preheating my house. So you didn't have to have the homeowner go like, oh, crap, now I'm going to have to freeze in the dark. (laughs) You actually had the system, the intelligence around it, saying, huh, well, if it's going to be worth $0.03 at 6 a.m. and $0.12 at 9 a.m., well, I could be preheating the house and float through it. So now you can see, The matchup between energy efficiency, energy conservation, so high insulation levels, and the ability for that energy transition to adapt, to foresee and adapt to the real-time price change. But, you know, if it's just like, well, now it's a buck and a half, and I haven't done the pre-cooling, or my house isn't insulated well enough to actually have pre-cooling work, then you are, you kind of doing the bad stuff, sweating in the dark, (laughs) trying to avoid that price hit.
0: You need a lot of things to come together. You need good insulation. You need an understanding of that. You need a system that's very simple where the homeowner doesn't have to be controlling it all the time, where it's automatic. Yes.
1: And that's exactly what we set up on the Olympic Peninsula. In fact, two things happened when we finished the experiment and went to take the equipment out. People said, Oh, no, don't take that out. That works. <laughs> and with them, we asked them questions about, you know, how did they set it up? They'd forgotten. It'd been a couple of years. And they were like, yeah, I don't remember. I set it so that I was sort of comfortable and avoided a lot of costs. And it worked fine for me. So please don't take it away. <laughs> and, and that's exactly the kind of system that you need.
0: I agree. Simple, easy to set up and use with success for a long time.
1: We call this sort of like the Morant stereo volume dial. That was sort of the setup. He said, do you want to be very comfortable and bear the costs of that? Or are you willing to forego a little bit of comfort and save a lot of money? And people picked their setting. If they wanted to go down inside, they could say, yeah, but don't change my pool pump. Or that water heater dang well better be hot <laughs> 7 a.m. when I have to get up and go to work. So they they could reach inside and twiddle those settings. But then the forward price signal helped the system say, it's going to be pretty expensive come 9 a.m. or 6 p.m. The grandest part of that experiment was we pretended that somebody had, you know, driven into the substation and taken out half of the substation's capacity. So the forward price signal got pretty radical. Uh, we happened to do that experiment during the coldest days of winter. Ouch. And people were absolutely happy. It was amazing.
0: Can you explain why they were happy? I don't get they it. They were
1: happy. They were <laughs> happy because they didn't suffer any discomfort.
0: They already had the technology in place to deal they with They already such a
1: thing. had the technology in place.
0: I got it. I got it.
1: That was our experiment.
0: You mentioned energy efficiency. And from my perspective, that has been a huge success story. LED light bulbs are the latest. I can't imagine what we would be doing if we still needed as much energy for our appliances. It seems like we've come a really long way with regards to energy efficiency.
1: Yes, and we're about to come a long ways on the variable energy use for appliances. The CEO at EPRI took a tour to Korea a few years back and talked to a battery manufacturer and said, well, what's coming in batteries And the guy says, batteries are going to be in your toaster. Batteries are going to be in your microwave. Now we haven't seen that come in yet, but the battery guys were already anticipating that you're going to want to be able to vary those kinds of appliance loads in time, and batteries are going to be the solution for that.
0: I've always thought that the problem with that was that you would be dedicating your battery just to one appliance, and given the cost of batteries... It would be better to have a whole house battery or even a whole grid battery, so that it could be much more leveraged. The cost that you're paying for the batteries.
1: Yeah, one of the thought experiments we did at BPA with the connivance of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory was: Where should the batteries be, and how soon do I have to buy them? It came down to their advice was, well, for God's sake, don't buy the biggest battery you can right now because it's really really expensive, and they are going to come down in price. So at that time, another researcher at PNNL was basically saying, you know, electric vehicles are really going to take off. At that point, I owned a Prius and I was perfectly happy. And I couldn't ever really imagine that an electric vehicle would actually overtake Prius sales. And the researcher at PNL is going, to say, no, I will.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was at SDGE and I promoted the idea of electric vehicles, people at the company told me I was talking science fiction that these things would never exist, they would never charge that fast, they couldn't possibly succeed. I think they have a different perspective now.
1: (laughs) Yes, as do I, being the proud owner of a Model 3 Tesla. Holy moly. Now I can imagine that these things will overtake gasoline-powered vehicles.
0: You've already talked about some of your prior background, but can you talk about some setbacks that you've had along the way?
1: Yeah. <laughs> in high school, I got a job cleaning the Veterans of Foreign Wars Hall and was asked one day, hey, uh, turn your key back in. <laughs> fired. <laughs> Graduating from college, I was so employable. Oh, whoa, whoa, why'd you actually... get
0: fired? I want to know why you got fired. What, what did you do? Did you have a party in there? You know, they never told me.
1: Okay, They just said, turn the key back in.
0: <laughs> I think it was the beer bottles, man. I think it was Probably. the beer bottles. <laughs> If you have to go that far back to find a a setback, that's pretty good.
1: Yeah. Graduated from college in 73 from the Evergreen State College. And the 70s was sort of a hard time to find a job. I ended up being the night clerk at a convenience grocery store. Got held up once. Wow. Tried to take that job experience to a grocery store in the town next door. And in those days, you didn't scan things. You had to key in codes. And I was really bad at keying in codes. (laughs) So (laughs) they finally came by and said, yeah, Terry, we can't use you. (laughs) Fortunately, that put me really on sort of the energy track. At that point, there was the Washington Public Power Supply System was busy trying to build five nuclear plants all at the same time. And the Comprehensive Education and Training Act had been signed into law, I think, by, must be Richard Nixon. And so I got a job as the energy planner at a local planning organization. Had a five subcommittee, 30-member committee, (laughs) to come up with an energy plan for the county. And that brought me to the attention of BPA, who needed somebody to run a local government program for them from the Power Act. So that got me a nice cushy job at Bonneville
0: Nice cushy job. I know that you're not (laughs) tired, so your biggest success might still be coming up, but can you talk about what you consider the success you're most proud of?
1: Well, one of them is definitely the Hood River Conservation Project. $20 million investment in insulation and triple paned windows in Hood River, Oregon. And it took us about five years to pull the project off, but we dominated the professional literature about what's the impact, what's the design that gets you a community energy project that was a raging success. It also got me a $10,000 reward from the Department of Energy. So that was
0: pretty sweet. Very nice. Personally or to the company? Personally. Nice. That was a lot of money back then. Oh, yeah. With regards to climate change, what is your vision of the future? Where do you see the world 20, 30, 40 years from now?
1: In the worst case?
0: You could tell me worst case. You could tell me <laughs> best case. Or you, can give me, you could give me all your thoughts about well, it. Well, I
1: think it's worth setting out the worst case. In the worst case, uh, according to a very recent study that I just read about, People will not be able to live in vast parts of the planet. You think that a lot of folks escaping Africa and the Middle East into Europe was a problem. Multiply that by 10. And it's just about temperature. The human body adapts well to a particular temperature range. And big parts of the planet could very well exceed that temperature range. So that's probably the worst end of it. The tough way that will get us to the best part of that Energy efficiency, transactive energy, renewable energy, electric vehicles. I think the utilities in the U.S. anyway are under the right thread, that it's going to be renewable energy and it's going to be electrification. It's actually going to help us a lot. And those things combined are going to get us to a more stable climate regime. It's going to be hotter. Is it going to be too hot?
0: We hope not. It's interesting that you mentioned the perspective of the utilities. A few years ago, their perspective, as far as I could tell, was not around renewable energy. However, I would say in the last 12 to 24 months, I've really seen a shift to where they are saying, yes, renewable energy is what the future is going to be. So we have to figure out how to get there. It's a welcome change of perspective, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yes. I used to get invited to EPRI's summer seminar. And I think the very first one I went to, and I cannot remember the year, there was somebody from SMUD who was really having a hard time with, I think it was Solar City. They were, you know, why are you guys lying about us? Da, 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 da. And it was very much anti-renewables. And over about a 10 year period, the realization that utilities had something in electrification and renewable energy adaptation that actually would help save the planet. Start to spread among a lot of utilities and the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of EPRI utilities. And that is a big change.
0: So you gave me, I guess, a range of perspectives for the future. How do you think the coronavirus, the pandemic, has affected that vision or has it?
1: It's given us a sense of what uh, apocalypse looks like. And like I said, I think the climate apocalypse, if we allow it to happen, will be worse. But we're not even 30% through the pandemic, so I could be really, really wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my wife has said to me a couple of times that it feels like we're living in a disaster movie from the 70s or the 80s or one of the zombie television series or something like that. But it really is only the first. This gives us a taste of what it could be like. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? You can't think of anything. Then I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a rap about climate change. You took personal stock because you went to a conference in Bangkok. Natural gas doesn't smell, it's the additive that reeks, but it's a big greenhouse gas because it leaks. If you want to avoid the cost of comfort, temptation, you have to preheat and precool, but you need insulation. What got you involved in energy, in supply, and loads is that you were no good in keying in codes. When you talked about your vision, you gave me the worst case. That parts of the planet will be too hot for the human race. And although from the job of cleaning you got fired, now you're retired, but not tired. We mentioned a geologist in Ellensburg, Washington that streams live videos, and after watching a few hours of Professor Zenter on YouTube, yes, he does. I never took geology in school, so this is all pretty new to me, and I'm loving the science lesson. So far, I've only finished the videos on climate, numbers 34 and 35, but I've started on number 44, Milankovitch Cycles, committed to in episode 34. Terry and I didn't discuss it, but we've both served as Gridwise Alliance board members. But Terry has me way beat by being named a fellow at the Portland International Center for the Management of Engineering and Technology for his contributions to the development and growth of the engineering and technology management discipline, and honored with BPA's highest award, the Meritorious Service Award. If you have comments or questions about the podcast visit my website at www.crivatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Although retired, as the owner of TVO Global... Terry consults in energy efficiency, sustainable energy, international energy policy, and anything innovative and exciting. He also volunteers as a mentor with SCORE, a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to the formation, growth, and success of small businesses. And Grid Forward, formerly Smart Grid Northwest, and I'll be interviewing Grid Forward's CEO, Bryce Yonker, next week. A big thank you to Terry for staying engaged in retirement and continuing his decades long pursuit to help mitigate climate change.